Chapter 4. I won't forget what Cheryl McCollum told me. There were three main motives for murder. Sex, money, revenge. Susan Carpenter says the motive to kill Diane Shields is clear. The only motive for that is that they wanted to get rid of her and make an example of her. And that's what they did. They made an example of her. But is her murder connected to Mary's disappearance? They're going to run into people who are just going to tell you no way or, you know, no way were they connected and da 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 Don't believe it. Honestly, don't believe it. The people who are trying to still cover this up want that to go away, I believe. Want that to dispel, dispel this thing that there's two two murders. And um, uh, connected, connected. And um, I, I, I think the most important thing about this whole thing is that they're connected. And I think that the way we'll find out what happened is because they're connected. There's so many theories uh, from trying to make it like a swingers group, you know, which is, I'm not going to say those things didn't happen back then, but three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. That was the, you know, the Hell's Angels, you know, motto. So I think if it would have been truly that widespread, we would have heard about it back then, that they had some of these sexual games going on or whatever. From 11alive.com, Tegna Media, and the Gone Cold series, I'm Jessica Knoll. This is Five Roses. Both Mary and Diane work for CNS Bank. Both receive suspicious phone calls. Both receive roses. And now, they're both gone. That, among other reasons, is why Susan Carpenter believes their cases are linked. Do you believe the two are connected? Oh, absolutely. They did not know each other, and some people will still try to argue they weren't connected, but they're connected by whatever was going on at that thing. That's what they're connected by. And so it might have been continuing to go on at that thing all along, and uh, and, and somehow Diane was sitting... I get different stories about what Diane's job was at the bank, but from my last my last meeting, uh, she was sitting at the desk that Mary was sitting at when she was there. And so there was something deep that this is the problem. I don't think we'll let we'll let there's any way for us ever to find out what was going on at that bank. I think it might have involved politicians. I think it might have involved government officials, judges, you know, whatever. Um, And it's so deeply buried that we may never know. Um, And that's what's so sad about it. Diane moved from Alabama to Atlanta to get a job. Her sister lives there. She worked at the bank for a while. She was engaged to be married. Uh, Somebody saw her leave her work, and then she never made it home. Then about two or three o'clock in the morning or something like that, a lady and her the lady and her child at the laundromat walked by this car and had been there for a long time. But when the policeman got there, they saw blood coming out of the trunk and they opened it up and that poor girl stuffed it up, just stuffed in there. Her throat had been split. Oh, she's horrible, horrible. And then she had the paper stuffed down her throat. They took her into their autopsy where that report is. I have no idea. And then the investigation started. They got all kinds of suspects. They, they um, were able to clear just about everybody. I mean, they cleared everybody, basically. They had no evidence that they could use against anybody. You know, 
just like Mary, it just kind of went away. Somebody said, oh, you know there was another girl from the bank killed. And then I started digging and found out about this and, and contacted the East Point Police Department. At that time, she had lived in the same apartment or with some of the same roommates. I don't know if it was the same apartment, but she had lived with some of the same roommates that Mary had lived with before she got married. She supposedly sat at the bank, got the job at the bank, and was at the same desk that Mary was at. In the same vicinity, you know, uh, at the same job. Yeah, they could be circumstantial. They may not be anything. If it was just one of them, I have a tendency to believe that, but there's three of them. So I don't believe that. The attorney and budding author has a different lens to look through for these cases. Not having a law enforcement background like the rest of the task force. She keeps her focus on suspicion and everyone in these women's paths as having a motive. Now, the person who's always intrigued me was her boss because I really believe he knew more than he. I talked to him on the phone. Uh, I emailed with him years ago, before. I don't think he ever did it, but I really believe he knew more. This is what was odd about all this. She didn't show up for work. I think within 30 minutes of her not showing up for work, he went to her house. This is what he said. He drove to her house. The president of the bank or her boss, the manager, manager of that bank, drove to Mary Little's house, apartment, saw that the newspapers were still out, I don't know, milk bottles out or something. He knew that she'd been to the mall with Isla, so he drove straight from her house, her apartment, to the mall and found the car. That just all seemed a little too easy for me. And nobody else had reported the car being there all morning. Um, and nobody else really noticed anything about it. I mean, there was blood on the outside of the door. Um, there was blood on the exterior of the car, but there were no cars parked around it, I don't think, when he got, when he found it and called the police. The security guard no did say he noticed the car that when he was asked about it later, but nobody noticed it enough to pay attention to anything that was wrong with it. So that scenario has always really bugged me. Why was he the one to find the car? You know, you know, and the police weren't called, so he had already been to her house, and uh, they knew something was wrong, because she's never late for work, da 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 Well, what if her car broke down or something, you know? And Diane, she says, must have known the same thing as Mary. Whatever that thing was, someone didn't want Diane to know either. She found out something or was in a situation in that bank where she might have found out something and was talking to people, even if it was just, hey, you know what? Remember that girl Mary Shotwell Little that disappeared? You know what? I think something really bad happened to her. You know, even if it was just, I think she talked to the wrong person about something she thought she knew. And I think she was taken out by some, you know, you hate to say mafia, but it was really there by some group of criminals were paid to take her out because she was talking. That's what I think. She was talking about something she heard or a gossip at the bank. She was not raped. She was not robbed. You have to look for the motive behind anything like this. She was grabbed 
you know, on her way home from work, somehow, brutally beaten, cut, and phone book stuck down and stuffed down her throat. The only motive for that is that she, they wanted to get rid of her and make an example of her. And that's what they did. They made an example of her. But anybody else who talks about those things is, not, is going to be less likely to do so. It was just a year and a half after Mary. So same people who were there when Mary disappeared, a lot of them certainly were still there at the bank. And I'm sure there was lots of gossip and talk still about what happened to Mary. And, and that's what I think she talked to the wrong person, said the wrong thing. People thought she knew more than she did. I doubt she knew anything. I really do. I think it was just, she was just chit-chatting like everybody else chit-chats, and she got, and she got killed for it. I just didn't know how deep this went because I knew, I know in my gut something really bad was going on, and it had to do with people and authority, and it had to do with lots of money. I just know that in my gut. Um, which is not where I started with this. I started with this poor girl. She disappeared. What happened to her? You know? <laughs> right. Now, through the years, talking to other people and realizing how far-reaching this could be, when you think about the southeastern region and all of the um, congressmen, senators, judges, you know, law enforcement, all of that that could be even FBI, I mean, who knows? And I'm not a conspiracy theorist person, you know? Uh, but at least I didn't used to be. Now I am. Speaking of conspiracy theories, here's another layer to this onion. There was rumored to be unaccounted for bags of money on the floor at the bank and a love shack for employees and customers in the 60s during the time frame that Mary and then Diane worked there. Backroom meetings, all this crazy kind of stuff going on. And he said on more than one occasion that, and I'm extrapolating a little bit, that there'd be a envelope found in the men's room, an envelope found on somebody's desk, an envelope found on the floor, and there's big money, not a hundred bucks, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars of money in a blank envelope, and he'd go to his boss, and the boss would say, oh, yeah, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it. So all this crazy, wild, non-accounting mm-hmm. monkey business going on at a bank, and then these two girls, possible connection are gone. Absolutely. Another, another layer, another layer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Investigators John Fedak and Cheryl McCollum both believe that the bank is not only the thread that connects Diane to Mary, but it also might be the key to solving both cases. And here's the other thing that I think is really important. Um, To John's point, I don't think anything happened to that bank that he wasn't aware of it. Mm -hmm. So whether, you know, he was sending out the invitations to the love shack or not, (laughs) he damn well knew. Because that's where careers were made. All of a sudden, you'd have this 21-year-old that hadn't... um, Yes, absolutely. It hadn't, you know... She'll know everything. Absolutely. And has told it. <laughs> That's how I know. There you but go. You, you have this girl that hadn't... She doesn't have, you know, a college degree. She hadn't come up the ranks. They have a weekend at Lake Lanier. They come back. Suddenly, she's your supervisor. Come on now. You know so what that, I mean? So that was the love shack that... And these employees will know the love shack. Yep. 
the, no question. The, the, now, go ahead. go ahead. They'll tell you to this day, no question about it. And was Mary a part of the love shack? I have no knowledge. I do know from I do know, people have said that if a young girl was hired at the bank and she wanted to get on the fast track and and get promotions, that I can't say it was forced. That's not even close. It it was helpful mm-hmm. to entertain these big clients when they came out of town. Mm-hmm. Helpful, and I'll leave it at that. Helpful. And I there was a, there was a heck of a lot of helpful meetings. A heck of a lot of them. Yes. Plus, you have to remember there are allegations of sex of of lesbian harassment. But what he's trying to tell you yeah. is what we've been told about the love shack, Sodom and Gomorrah. There you go. So not a lot was off the table. Gotcha. That's a beautiful analogy. It Who was... calls it the love shack, by the way? They did. They did. Well, I don't think they wanted anybody to have any misconceptions of what this weekend was about. I mean, I think it was clear to everyone. But a lot of people had keys to it. So again, if you were having an affair, you could say, hey, I'm going to have a meeting away from the bank on a Wednesday afternoon mm-hmm. and just head up to Lake Lanier. Ron Walker, a retired East Point detective, got his start with Diane's case in 2005 when he was assigned to the Fulton County Cold Case Unit. That's when he started looking into Mary's case as well to connect the dots. And a lot of those dots led him to CNS Bank. I think the two are the same. I think it's the same similarities are there. And I would like to be able to prove that, you know, one day. They both worked at CNS. They both, you know, different departments, but but the same bank. Uh, And I think it was a little over a year apart, year and a half apart. But it's the same bank and two, two of the same people disappeared and was murdered. Something, something's up, something we just don't know, you know. Ron sits inside our WXIA reception area for our interview. With his hands folded in front of his chest, his long curly white hair resting on his yellow collar. He proceeds to tell me that the biggest hang up in his investigation was no one wanted to talk to him, including the FBI. The bad part about it is everybody that was involved, or most everybody, has passed away, or they're just hiding out and they don't want to talk. Even years later, people don't like to talk because they're still scared. Again, my only thing was is the the political figures that owned the bank, ran the bank, uh, the sports figures who had hand, their hands in the bank. <laughs> you get up people like that, and they, you know, they have a lot of influence. Well, I mean, money is one of the top motives for right. murder, right? Exactly, exactly. Everybody was kind of hesitant to talk with us about it. Uh, uh, the department said usually handle cases like this, work together usually. Uh, at this time, I found we found a lot of resistance on, on other levels of the uh, government. Such as? Well, the FBI handled the case, you know, beginning. And then uh, people with the bank, you know, that was in charge of the bank and, and ran the bank was kind of hesitant to talk with us about it. Nobody wanted to tell us anything. Um, did get with family members, but, you know, they need very little. Uh, tried to find friends, couldn't do. We talked to several, or the, I think, the lead the, uh, FBI agent who has passed away at this time. Um, he just said, 
it wasn't connected. He didn't think it was connected, and that, that, that's it. Where do you think that resistance comes from? <sighs> the only thing, I, I, I can't, you know, it, there's something more to the case, I think, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, my belief is that possibly uh, Mary Shotwell Little was, was not killed. That's, that's one of my theories. Um, the car, you know, it had just a little tiny, you know, just a little uh, bit of blood. <clears throat> Her clothes were folded. Nothing was tore up in the car. Uh, it just didn't seem like that's a, someone who had been beaten in the car and, and taken somewhere and dumped. It just didn't seem like that's possible. Then there were other theories that, you know, she's possibly buried somewhere in the city of East Point somewhere. During his persistent pursuit, much like others on the task force, he found that the bank was involved in some alleged sex and money scandals. The biggest thing, I think, was the, the prostitution ring going on uh, and the, and the uh, uh, lesbian uh, activities going on. And I'm thinking maybe people wanted to cover that up, that they didn't want nobody knowing that the bank dealt with that kind of stuff. From the way I, the report read, it was kind of hard to read. You mentioned parties and stuff earlier, but that uh, certain people would come in and they would leave with certain people. At one time, I'm not thinking of the, I'm trying to think when Jim, uh, when uh, the Atlanta detective was working it, they had talked about that they had in back rooms of the bank, possibly, you know, rooms set up for men to go to with the women. That was never proven, and we, I never saw anything else on that. What okay. kind of things were going on at the bank that you know of based on reports? On the reports, uh, illegal loan practices. And at one time there was, uh, with the manager at the, uh, in Savannah, he had mentioned there was a, a prostitution ring being run out of the bank. And maybe somebody was trying to get the word out, and maybe you know, they were taken out of the picture at that time. I'm wondering if possibly something was going on with the bank that was not on the up and up, you know, illegal. Uh, there were uh, ties in the bank that the, I mean, if the owner at that time was a high public uh, political figure. Uh, ties with the uh, boxing uh, business out in, out west. Uh, it just seemed like maybe she was told to be quiet and didn't, and you know, you know maybe transferred her to, you know, another state, another area, I don't know. Possibly just to maybe keep her quiet of anything that was going on, because there were signs of uh, things going on at the bank that was not legal, you know, from what I, we could see from the reports. And from there, I'm, I'm just wondering, is she still here? You know, she's still alive. One similarity between Mary and Diane that no one can shake is they both received roses prior to vanishing. From what I can tell, combing through police reports and interviews conducted in the 60s, Mary's admirer was never ID'd. But here's where the story gets fascinating because when you work in an office and somebody says, oh, Sarah got engaged. Oh, that's great. To who? Well, I think he works at the aquarium. Okay, well that's not somebody that knows where he works. But then when I tell the story, I'll say, John, did you hear Sarah got engaged to that guy at the aquarium? Well now I'm telling it as though it's fact. Just that simple. So when we were told the story by one of the roommates, 
Um, Mary received a bouquet of flowers at work. She reads the card and immediately throws them in the trash and like darts out of the office. So they were like, well, she seems so upset. You know, well, the way it was explained to us, they all kind of knew Roy to be sort of a tightwad and thought, Roy certainly probably didn't send her roses. He's not that kind of guy. He's not romantic. And he would think that would be a waste of money because they're going to be dead in three days. Well, but it clearly upset her. And there were only five of them. Well, then the story that we were told is right before Diane was murdered, she also received flowers. So then everybody's like, oh my Lord, is this the bouquet stalking killer type thing? So the flowers became something that intrigued me almost as much as anything else because we called a bunch of different uh, florists and I talked to one particular person, Clyde Finley, who used to run um, a florist in East Point, I mean, since the 60s. And I asked him, I said, would you deliver like one rose or five roses? He went, honey, in the 60s, I would have delivered one green leaf if they'd wanted me to, because it was money. Whereas now, you know, they want you to have a significant, you know, a dozen or whatever. They're not gonna, you know, send you one rose, you know, by delivery. Um, but the interesting thing was whoever bought the roses paid cash, um, didn't fill out anything there, didn't get the uh, lady there at the florist to fill out the card. So they had no record of him and couldn't really remember what he looked like. Um, so again, to me, that was fascinating. And just to interject, uh, Diane, was it Five Roses also, or just Well, that's flowers? why I want John to pick it up, because again- Don't, can't, not by my pay grade, I can't remember. Oh, okay. On, on, please go ahead. Okay, but again, that's what we were told um, by roommates, that both received Five Roses. So we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what was significant about the number five, if anything. Mm -hmm. Because it seems like to me it would be to that person. Um, why not send a tulip? Why not send three daffodils? I mean, why five roses? So to me, that became extraordinary. But the thing with Mary's roses is really odd because apparently they were paid in cash. The florist did not have any record of the sale. There was no name on it. It was just delivered, which is odd. Even if I go down and pay cash at the florist, there's a bill written out, and there's something in their record. Even if they, even if I wanted, okay, don't put my name on them. Even if I wanted um, my name not on them, there's some record of me buying those roses. And I think it was true, a lot of people gave, gave roses. And I, I it was common back then, you know, people sent gay roses more. You could give a woman flowers for something that, not, you might not have any real connection to her, but she'd done a favor for you. I think it was a babysitting job, and the father gave her roses. It was just kind of more. Now the ones to Mary, I think more, she's already married, somebody sent her some roses. Now the police officer who, who actually followed up that lead said, the, uh, the florist said they didn't know, but he said, I kind of felt that they just didn't like to tell their tell on their customers. Uh, he said, I, he said, I don't know that it had anything to do with her being killed. It could have been somebody else. But he said, I, I just sort of felt they weren't telling, but you know, we couldn't prove it. They said they weren't sure.
who who had ordered these flowers. And I don't know, maybe maybe I don't know how flowers work much now. I mean, I don't know if there's. I guess it's computerization. You can do it. Or you can you can send flowers around the world or whatever. But back then, it was just you go to a florist, and I guess if a florist said, "Look, keep this." And I don't tell people who, who who ordered these roses. Sometimes people, but because they were trying to maybe excite a woman and then maybe reveal themselves later, you know, kind of the old romance type stuff. Mm-hmm. That they would say, you know, don't don't. But they didn't have a subpoena to find out. And, and anyway, he said these florists said, I I don't really know who it was. I don't remember. Uh, but he said he I thought they were kind of lying, but he he didn't think they were necessarily really cover up anything sinister but he's they just don't like to rat out their customers so people secret admirers can send stuff if they want to do it I guess Uh, so but that detail has lived for a long time and I I, I guess it's because it's such a it's one of those great details bottom line coincidences are hard to shake especially when their stories seem to parallel each other pushing them together for an unfettered alignment of facts. Do you believe in coincidences? Uh, Being a a police officer, no. There are no coincidences. No, ma'am. Zero. Zero. Because there's a a whole lot of uh, similarities between the two cases. And to believe that they're not related in some way seems impossible to me. Because there's too many coincidences. I, you know, one, maybe two things that are kind of, but there's a lot of connections between the two. Whatever happened to Mary, the bottom line is I believe that CNS Bank and the owner have some really big bad thing going on, and um, and Mary was somehow either knew about it or she was killed as an example or or kidnapped as an example to the others. So um, that's my whole thing about that. Now, with Diane, I think Diane may have gotten onto some of the same information. She left the bank. She had been working at the bank. Mm -hmm. She left the bank and was at another job when she was killed. And when they found her, she had, you know, there's been different stories of what was stuffed down her throat, but it wasn't just stuffed in her mouth. There was, there was some people say it was, it was telephone book pages. Other people say it was just paper stuffed down her throat. I had talked to, uh, one of our people is a very experienced DA and investigator. And he said that is a clear um, message of shutting up somebody. Yeah. You know, don't talk about this or this is going to happen to you. Um, and that was just a horrible, gruesome thing. Just a horrible thing they did to that girl. Um, and so after 50 years, uh, this is where we are. <laughs> Still. <laughs> I tried calling Judy Brownlee, a former CNS employee. We're sorry, you have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. Who both worked and roomed with Mary and Diane on separate occasions. And Jean Rackley. Your call has been forwarded. 
forwarded to an automatic voice message system. Nine, one, two, six. The women's boss at CNS. To learn more about the bank and more about Mary and Diane. Hi, Mr. Ackley. This is Jessica Knoll with 11 Alive in Atlanta. And I'm working on a story about Mary Shotwell Little, and I wanted to talk to you about her. Uh, if you could give me a call, my number But with is- no luck. I should also note that in my investigation, I was never able to substantiate any claims of shady or illegal activity at the bank during that time period. Mary and Diane weren't alone in their fears. On June 2nd, 1967, 44-year-old Richard Zimmerman, the VP of operations at the Mitchell Street branch of CNS Bank, vanishes. After his wife reports him missing, according to police files, he calls the following day to say he's okay and will be home later that day without further explanation. On June 9th, Jack Mullinax tells police that someone followed him at three o'clock. Two hours later, he says a man got into his car and forced him to drive to Henry County. And that's where he says the man shot him and that his assailant is one of the men he saw with Diane the night she was killed. Days later, Mullinex tells police that he actually shot himself because he is having money issues. After Diane's murder, her friend and former coworker, Clarence Lee Crumbly, comes forward to police and tells them that he was fired from CNS Bank. He says he believes that Diane and Mary's cases are connected and somehow tied to the personnel department at the bank. Further, he says he's too scared to talk and feels like he's in danger at the bank. The bank, he says, was loaned to the max. He says the day after he divulges to Judy Brownlee about personnel issues, he was fired. He tells police in detail what those said personnel issues were, but would only do so off the record. There's no record of what was said in that conversation with police. Also, one of Diane's roommates reports being threatened after she was murdered according to Geraldine Dyer, who spoke with her some 20 years ago. Sandy Green's husband, he apparently said that somebody called him and said, your wife is next. And and uh, and she said, well, we moved. Of course, she moved, lived in Maine for a while. But she said, yeah, that's just, I couldn't I couldn't stay after we heard that. I said, it's probably some very vicious prank. But somebody who knew that she, you know, had contact with, you know, that's mean, but... Yeah, it's still scary. Oh, it's, oh, it's very yeah. scary. Were there more victims who got the message before it was too late to shut up? None that were reported. But one of the cases was about to break wide open because after nearly 30 years, someone finally talked. Five Roses is produced, narrated, and reported by Jessica Knoll. Joe Flacari co-produced Five Roses. Philip Kish is the digital director. Aaron Peterson is the executive producer. Brendan Keefe is our TV investigator. Joshua Coates created the graphic. And special thanks to Annie Campbell. Five Roses is produced for WXIA-TV, 11alive.com, and Tegna Media, 
as part of our ongoing digital series, Gone Cold. We are on Twitter and Instagram as Gone Cold. And we have a Facebook page you can join and discuss the podcast and other cold cases. You can read more cold case stories and listen to our upcoming monthly podcast by visiting 11alive.com backslash gone cold.